You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Wow. Same thing happened this service as last service, and that is I was thinking about the throne. I was like, look at, I have a vantage point over there. I'm not staring at you. I'm moved at what the Holy Spirit's doing in our room. I'm moved by your focus of praise, your focus on Jesus. I am. It's kind of like to have group prayer, and we always bow your heads, close your eyes. Yeah, but sometimes it's good to just look around and watch people pray. It builds your faith. Look around and watch people praise. It builds your faith. And I think there's just, how can I say this? Talking with my buddy Yuval in Israel yesterday on the, on the phone, actually a FaceTime type thing, for like an hour. Lance, we're hearing things about the church in America. Is it true? And I'm like, it's all according to what you say. <laughs> Revival. And I instantly said, yes. Amen. I said, yes, because... <laughs> hold on. Because I'm seeing Christians revive. Not just in a setting like this. this. This should be like, because of what you've done all week, or you're going to do in this coming week, I am worshiping you. Because of who you are, I'm worshiping you. But I said, yeah, there's just more and more people finding opportunities to share with more and more people. Hearts are opened. It begins with us. We're revived. And all of a sudden, we got to share what we, it's just too good to hold in. And he goes, that's what we're seeing with Christians in Israel. He goes, it's just, it's just, and we're all, we're all, we're in our third lockdown. We're completely locked down. Streets are empty. And he says, but all the Christians are seeing opportunities like never before in the wake-up call. And, and, and Lance, do you believe he's coming soon? That's what we're talking about. And I'm like, in the name of Jesus, I wish I could go over there right now and be raptured with you from Jerusalem. <laughs> Do not miss out on what the Spirit is doing in this what might be our final hour with Him. Don't miss out. Be all in. You're going up. Just don't go up reluctantly. <laughs> go up surrendered, looking up, worshiping Jesus. Lord, receive our praise and continue to just Meet us here. Oh, how you inhabit the praises of your people. For the onlooker that's just, they're yet to be saved. They might even see this as like, wow, that's awesome. They might even sense your presence because, Holy Spirit, you're with us. And there's, there's part of that to convict us. Lord, we just pray. We pray we would all be surrendered. And for the person that doesn't know you, we pray their surrender would be to a place where they would, they would know you. They'd give their life to you. And for the rest of us, our surrender would be so that we would give more of ourselves to you, more of our praise to you. Receive these surrendered hearts and the praise we give you. And feed us now, Holy Spirit, on your word. We love you. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen and amen. Why don't you say hi to some people around next to you and then have a seat.
fun season. More and more of you uh, that I see at the doors and even coming by during the day uh, saying, you know, we've been away and we're back. Can we just welcome all of those people that are like here because God brought you here and when and how, that's his deal. And, and I'd also like to greet our online audience. There's a large growing online audience. Let's greet them as well. We love you guys. Pray for you. Miss you. And uh, continue to pray for our brother, Kevin uh, Coben. He's, he's actually able to pick up the phone now, and so I'm calling him and bugging him now. But he's not out of the woods. He's got some serious stuff to, to work through, and he asked today that we would pray for a miracle. Let's pause. Lord, bring a miracle to Kevin Coben in his hospital bed right now and his believing nurse that's with him. May they see him touched by his king. Raise him up, Jesus, we pray. Heal him up in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. The book of Acts, chapter 1, this first chapter, where Dr. Luke is talking about Jesus. Again, a unique period of Jesus' ministry he's focusing on. Jesus started his ministry, and he was led away by the Spirit following his baptism into the wilderness. And he would be tempted for 40 days. And he would be victorious. He would not give in to any of the enemy's temptations. There, he would begin. For three and a half years of his life on earth, the latter probably from 30 to 33 and a half is what we speculate, he is busy ministering. We have his ministry before the cross, we have the ministry of Jesus at the cross. That's his ultimate ministry. We have the ministry of Jesus in between the resurrection and his crucifixion. We have the ministry of Jesus after his resurrection, the ministry of his resurrection and all that that produces and validates. But then we have the ministry of Jesus after his resurrection. We have the first day. We have the first week. And then... We have here in Luke's gospel a reference to 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension that he ministered. And he, he did many miracles, many things he did, preached a whole lot, talked a whole lot about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he came to bring to the world. And after he had said a few certain things, he would be taken up. What we've been focusing on is chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, those things that he had to say. One of the things that he focused on in his final conversation with the disciples was in reference to the third person of the Godhead. That's why we spent four weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. And in reference to the Holy Spirit, right before he would go back to heaven. He would talk about, I I'm going to be leaving you. <laughs> he had been telling them that in John 14 to John 16, a great read on that, by the way, and we'll reference part of that. But now he's going to be leaving them. And just as John the Baptist, his, his cousin, baptized you and others in water, that was a baptism unto repentance. Out in the Judean wilderness, he dropped you in that water and your faith was like 
I was a Jew, but my faith is in the, the repentance and the deliverance and the forgiveness of my God. All of that pointing to Jesus. And, and just a few days from now, as you were baptized in the water, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And to them, these, these 11 that are left, Judas is gone. He's went out and hung himself. They've now watched him for 40 days. The infallible proofs, the undeniable proof that everything he said about who he was, about why he came, and what he offers to mankind was validated. A dead Savior can save nobody. A risen Savior can save everyone he says he will save. And that's the whole world. There is no sin that is beyond his grace of forgiving and pardoning. There is no sinner that is beyond his reach to save. Amen. And so that Jesus walked on the earth for 40 days validating all of that. But he's also got a continuation of ministry. Whenever we talk about the ascension of Jesus, we talk about the details of his going back to heaven. And it, we will this morning. And it's, it's important. It's kind of a fun read and fun discussion. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to continue the focal point, as I said, when we began the book of Acts, we would focus on not just Acts, the development of the church, and how God used the apostles to develop the church, but we said we would focus on the Holy Spirit wherever we can, and the Holy Spirit working through the apostles to continue the ministry of Jesus. The Gospels give us what Jesus did in his physical body for three and a half years. The book of Acts gives us what he continues to do in and through his spiritual body. That's the church. How do we relate the Holy Spirit to the ascension? How do we tie in the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, to the ascension? This morning I want to do just that. Imagine if you were. You've seen Jesus for 40 days. Even after the cross, you like would not want any day with him to end. You just wouldn't. You are sitting there. You have deserted him from the day he was arrested. You bolted. You're gone. You deserted that guy. If you're Peter, you deserted and denied him. But he's come back. Almost like God finding Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. Jesus comes back from the dead, back from the grave, and he finds each of these disciples hunkered down in fear, hiding in their shame. And he reveals himself to them. And they would never be the same. And now, he's going to be having these conversations. I'm sure they're thinking they've still got a tomorrow with him on the day he would ascend. And he would say some final words. We even did a study on the final words of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where you look at them. They didn't know this was his final words. But 
He had been talking about the third person of the Godhead. He had been talking about the Holy Spirit. He's like, now, now, guys, Terry, stay here in Jerusalem. That's where they're at. And when that promise of the Father comes, you, you, you're just going to be filled. He's going to come upon you. And, and you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He had already tied his continued ministry that they will run with to the needed work and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in their life. And now as he says these final words, a cloud descends down upon where they were in Jerusalem. Which in that area... Israel's climate, for the most part, is like ours. Up north is more lush, like our up north. Down south is a bit more dry, <clears throat> as our down south is a bit more dry. If you went to the Mexican border, as it were in proximity, and the layout of Israel shaped much like California, you cross that border, you go into Egypt rather than Mexico. Jordan to our east. But then you go up north, and, and you would get in, in well, Syria as well on, on the east, and then you'd get into the area of Lebanon. Jerusalem proper sits kind of more down south. And in our southern areas, especially in the more desert climates, we don't have fog. Not much fog. That would have been something unique that was happening as he was speaking. Most scholars believe that as this, he's speaking these things, verse 9, that's where we're at. While they were watching him speak, he was taken up and a cloud received him right out of their sight. Most scholars believe this is what is described as the Shekinah glory of God, this, 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 this cloud. It represents the pleasure of God, the presence of God. In the Greek, in the, excuse me, in the Hebrew, there's the word kabod, which speaks as like the weighty substance of God who is a spirit. And there is a a natural phenomenon that they would look at, much like God speaking to Moses through a bush that he saw that was actually on fire. Much like the nation of Israel when they would be set free out of Egypt, been in bondage for 400 years. That tenth and final plague is unleashed upon Egypt. Pharaoh allows the two and a half million Hebrews to go, and they would be led by the very presence of God. They would be led by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. All scholars believe that it is what they call the Shekinah glory of God. In the Hebrew, there's a word Hekinah, H-E-K-I-N-A-H, Hekinah. That means to dwell. It's one who dwells. Or it means, in reference to God here, he causes to dwell. He causes himself to dwell the weighty presence of God, his pleasure, his presence in this cloud. It's divine. In Exodus, the same cloud that led them. In Exodus 40, verse 35, a cloud would, would cover the tabernacle. God's presence was so intense that Moses couldn't even enter it. A cloud filled Solomon's temple on dedication day and 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, to where the priests who were to go in there and minister, they couldn't even enter it. 
We, we, we so want everyone to come into this room and encounter Jesus. We pray that. We pursue that. We even go about this in a way where we try and limit distractions. And just so you can encounter him. Imagine coming here on a Sunday. Really. Same God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh. So imagine you just, you just pulled up on the church parking lot. All the crazy stuff that are happening to the kids in the back car. If you got the kids, you know, you're bringing them to church and all that. You're like, take them to their classroom. And, and, and now you're like walking towards the sanctuary. And we haven't hit the third song yet. You haven't been sitting here surrendered. And you encounter the presence of God. I don't know your biological, physiological, mental response to the presence of God. But there is one. Some people weep. John in the New Testament falls down like a dead man. Some people just lift their voices even louder and forget about everyone in a room and they just raise their hands. No one told them to raise their hands. No one told them to stand up. It's just this something's happening between me and God and mentally, emotionally, physiologically, biologically, I'm responding. Imagine if the presence of God was so intense that it wasn't tears. You couldn't move. You just couldn't move any, any farther. In the early church, we'll get to it, there's going to be a prayer meeting where the whole room shook. You and I, if that were to happen, where do you think our minds would go? Earthquake! It's Southern California. What's the epicenter? What's it? And we would freak out and run for our kids. But if we were in so engulfed by the presence of God that your mind didn't go there, you just went, whoa. The disciples are about to step into and continue on Jesus' ministry. And the presence of God in a cloud just is there. When Jesus was with the disciples up north, the farther northern border, Lebanon, there's the Lebanon mountain range that runs all the way to the Hebron mountain range. And in Israel proper, in the border part of Israel today, there's Mount Hermon. And below Mount Hermon is the headwaters. That's where the, the Jordan River begins. If you had a river that ran right through California, right from north to south, the Jordan River begins there. It comes out of the ground. It's an amazing thing to see. Caesarea Philippi is there. Matthew 16, that's where Jesus was walking with the disciples and all of the idolatrous temples were there and he looked around and that's why he asked that question. I see what everyone else believes deity to be. Hey guys, who do you say that I am? That's, that's up north, Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon. It was there that Jesus would take three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Three that would become the initial leaders in the church, the spokesmen. Three that would need to 
learn a few unique things that others at that time didn't necessarily need to learn. These three, the same three that Jesus would, on the night in which he would be arrested, take them to go a little farther into the garden to pray intimately with him. The three that would find themselves seeing particular miracles through Jesus as he would remove them from the others and say, check this out. Those three he would take up to a mountain and it would say there that he would be transfigured before them or transformed before them in Mark's account, chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. And as he was there, we have human words trying to describe and define deity on display. If God were to display his glory to you and you saw just what glory of God he allowed you to see, you would try and put some us English terms to help understand and help others understand what we've seen. And so in Mark's gospel, and again in Matthew's, it's like his face began to shine like the sun. His clothes began to like shine like, I don't know, lightning, white as snow. We use words like that to go, the glory of God was on display and it was the brightest thing we've ever seen, even brighter than that. It speaks of the power of God, the purity of God, the majesty of God. It was on display. They saw that. Peter, he's watching all of this happen. And all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses show up as well. And he's like, it's never going to get better than this. Never. Let's start building tabernacles and let's stay right here, Jesus. Let's build one for you, one for those two guys. We're never leaving. Anybody had a mountaintop, just radical experience with the Lord, and you're like, that's amazing. It's just never going to get better than this? I have. Almost every camp I ever go to, every retreat I ever go to, I go, I can't get any better than this. I just don't want to stay here. I don't ever want to go back. How limiting. That's a limiting view of God. We're very Peter-like when that happens. Jesus hadn't even went to the cross yet. No need for that. Let's just hang out here and make tabernacles and worship. Now, he didn't come to make tabernacles with those guys and representing the law and the Moses and, and just hang out with Peter. No, 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 no. A cloud. A cloud comes upon Mount Hermon and cracking through the crowd is the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Jesus was completely committed to the mission, the redemptive plan of the Father. And the Father had sent His Son to fulfill that redemptive plan. It's all about Him and His ministry. Don't miss it. Hear Him. It had been 600 years at that point, up there on Mount Hermon, at the transfiguration, it had been 600 years since the Shekinah glory had manifested itself. God through a cloud that way on earth. And there it was, the same cloud that led the nation of Israel, the same presence at Kabod and Shekinah, the same cloud, if you will, 
the Shekinah that filled the tabernacle and filled the temple that descends now upon the Son. And the Father is affirming the ministry of the Son is now, just a few weeks later, once again in Jerusalem, descending down. And it's Jesus, not just with Peter, James, and John this time, but the others, minus Judas. The presence of God. The affirmation of God. They are about to take the mantle. He's leaving. Peter would say this in 2 Peter as later on as an aged Pastor Pete. He would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of what? His majesty. For he, speaking of Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's referencing the transformation the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God being put on display and how it radically defined His ministry for Jesus. And once again, right before He would step into ministry, and these guys would step into ministry, there's the affirmation of the Father seen through the Shekinah glory of God. Blanketed with the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the love of God, the truth of God, the peace of God. What an experience. What, a, what embracing all of that would be such motivation and encouragement on the heels of Jesus telling them, you're, you're going to become my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm not one that pushes experience. I'm not. But I have and I enjoy regular experiences with God. What I experience in this room is, is something that I hold dear to my heart. I don't talk a whole lot about it. It's just so... My dad used this word. I'm going to use it. I'm going to start using it. Now I'm allowed to. Now, Precious to me. Just precious. How much opposition would these guys face? How much opposition do you face? What pushes you on? What pushed them on? What would you tie your resolve as a Christian? Would you tie it to? Someone asked you, how do you keep going? How did you make it through that crisis, through that trial, through that storm? What do you tie that to? What do you credit that with? Peter would say, look, we didn't just make this stuff up. We saw, we experienced. And now they can always go back to just this 
moment as Jesus was speaking to them and the, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God affirming Jesus' ascension is one of many unique aspects of his ministry. For you note-takers, if Jesus had not ascended, as we see here, and returned to the Father, he could not have sent the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because he hinged in John 14 through 16, he hinged the sending of the Holy Spirit upon his leaving. So we, we look at John chapter 16. I have some of the verses up here. We're going to read beginning around verse 5. But he says to the disciples, he's been talking to them since chapter 14 of John's gospel about their weary heart and their troubled heart because he was talking about leaving them as it related to the cross. And they were just worked about that. He's like, guys, don't be worked about that. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. But I'm going to a place I'm going to prepare for you. And if I go, I'll, I'll come again to receive you and all that. But he continues on and he begins to talk about, like, I'm not leaving you as orphans. That's when he begins to talk about the, the, whole, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He'll be in you. He'll be bringing things to remembrance. And now the, the conversation continues on. And we get to this part of him talking about the ascension in chapter 16, verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you even asks, where are you going? You see, their heart, their heart had a hard time embracing the fact that he would ever leave. Pre-cross, before the cross, which John 15 is, they looked at him and they wanted him to be a political liberator. Would you just establish your kingdom, a literal kingdom right now, and like set us free from the tyranny of Rome? That's what they wanted from him. Okay, you're God. Okay, you're the Savior. Okay, you're the Messiah. But would you please, and they would define who he is based on what they wanted him to be. You don't ever want to do that with God. <laughs> Come to him for who he is. And just surrender to who he is. And surrender to his plan of redemption and his particular plan for your life as it relates to that. They just had a hard time. So, as it relates to him leaving, they just have a hard time. But now he's talking about not just the cross, but the ascension, going back to the Father. So, but now I go away to him who sent me, in verse 5, and none of you ask where you're going. That wasn't our, But because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Underline this, highlight this in your Bible, and know this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. 
And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The ascension tied to the Holy Spirit. In order for the Holy Spirit to come and fulfill his role on earth following Jesus' ascension, Jesus must ascend. And once he ascends, the Holy Spirit is going to begin to continue his ministry in some amazing ways. And Jesus highlights three specific things that refer generally to what he's going to be doing in the world. In my old notes, I thought I was worthy of repeating, so I drugged them over into my new notes, but I wrote this years ago. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring the world's consciousness, or bring to the world's consciousness three things. One, a correct perception of sin. Number two, a correct perception of righteousness. Number three, a correct perception of judgment. Listen, as it relates to him judging Satan. Interesting. The key word here is convict. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So the key word is convict. In the Greek, it's a legal term that means to cross-examine with, with the purpose of convincing or refuting. It means to bring to light, to expose, to convince. Listen, it's a word that basically says this, to bring people to a, a place of convincingly recognizing their failure. Interesting. He convicts the world in regard to sin, it says here, because men do not believe in me. Ultimately, it's not believing in Jesus Christ that condemns the lost sinner to hell. Not just the list of sins that they commit. Sometimes we get, that, we get that mixed up. I'm all choked up on this one. Hold on. You could take a person that is not saved. They're a really good person. Just a good person. They're still not saved. They're still a sinner that until they're saved, they're on a path that leads to an eternity that's separated from God called hell. You could take that same non-believer, we call him, or sinner that's yet to be saved, and say, yeah, but they are, they are living in sin. They're lying. That's sin. They're thieves. That's sin. They're living in fornication. That's sin. We get the list of the sins that they are committing. You could have that same individual Stop committing those sins. Stop lying, stop cheating, stop stealing, stop whatever. 
and they're still a non-believer, and they could have stopped all of that sin, and because they haven't put their faith in Jesus to save them, they're on a path that leads to an eternity apart from God that the Bible defines as hell. It's not believing in Jesus that condemns lost sinners to hell. Jesus said it. He's talking to Nicodemus, a religious leader who came to him by night in John chapter 3. He's like talking about how he needs to be born again. And Nicodemus had a hard time with that, but he's like that which is born of the flesh. That's one birth, and there's a spiritual birth. You've got to be born again. No one's ever going to make it to heaven unless they are. Okay. And then he, he points to the source. He's like, Nicodemus, you know the law. You know the, you know the Old Testament. You know all this. You know, as, as the serpent was held up by Moses in the wilderness, and the, the snakes were biting all the people, the fiery serpents, but as they looked up on that serpent on a pole, that by faith God just delivered them. They were, they were saved from dying because of the serpents that were biting them. Yeah, 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 I know that story. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever would believe in him might be saved. Then we have the scripture that we used to see in end zones when people used to attend football games. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting yeah, you know that. 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 18, mm. he who believes in him, speaking of himself, Nicodemus, he who believes in me is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he had not believed in the only begotten son of God. That message needs to get out. How many people do we talk to? I'm a good person. You know how many times I've been called in to people dying on a bed? Go pray with my uncle, my whatever. And you're like, okay. You go in there and you're like, hey, you know, so you don't look like you're going to make it. <laughs> I don't say that. <laughs> if I want to scare him into salvation, I will. But you look bad, dude. You don't look like you're going to last another hour. No. But I go in and it's, it's amazing how many times they're, they're ready to meet their maker because they've been a good person. Do you know your maker? No. So we've got to get that sorted out. This is important. I need to understand that I need a Savior. And if Jesus didn't ascend, he wouldn't have sent the Holy Spirit to convict me to a point of I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Do you get it? How important is the ascension now? The word convict, legal term, to absolutely, unequivocally convince someone they're wrong. That is where it begins as far as like the Spirit being left to come alongside us to convict us and bring us to the point of embracing that we're wrong when it comes to, 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 to God and, and we're sinners in need of a Savior. Secondly, to convict the world of righteousness. If Jesus didn't ascend, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have been sent 
and thus he would not be here convicting people of righteousness. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say as we go in our mind to convict the world of unrighteousness. It doesn't. It says that he has been left here to convict the world of righteousness. What's that? Well, it's a reference to the righteousness of God that is imparted to those who put their faith in his son. Hmm. So Spirit's here to refute and convince unequivocally, undeniably, show me that I'm a sinner, I'm wrong, and what it is to be made right. Uh-huh. How important is the ascension now? It's interesting because Paul, before he was Paul, we've talked about that, he was Saul and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. For you that are new to studying God's word, what does that mean? That means that he was part of the Jewish faith. He was part of the hierarchy, the leadership. And to be a Pharisee, you were on your game. In Philippians, Paul would talk about what he was before he met Christ as a Pharisee, and he said, I was like at the top of the class. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. When it came to keeping the law, I pulled it off. What's that mean? He was a braggadocious guy? Yeah. But it also means that he was a very legalistic guy. And if you sat down and talked to a Pharisee, and you, you got him to be a little bit honest and give you some time, and you said, why are you really doing all this? Why, why are you not eating that and only eating this? Why are you dressing this way? Why are you, you, you bro you've broken the whole concept of tithing down to like tithing up every spice that you have, every oil that you have, every bit of, why are you, and then you're putting all of these legal requirements on everyone around you. They got to do this and not do that. And, and why are you doing that? You know what they'd say if they were honest? I am gaining something from God. What is it you're gaining? Right standing with God. The righteousness that I need, I'm trying to gain from God. That's what I'm, I'm going after. But understand, when that Pharisee said that, the righteousness of God was never anything he intended to be gained. Even in the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant. In order to find right standing with God, it was an exercise of faith. You and I, as a nation, if we were Hebrew, once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, we would have, we would have animals sacrificed, their blood shed, on behalf of our sin, so that we could find at one mint. We're apart because of our sin. God says in Isaiah, you know, my, my hand is not short that I cannot save, my ear is not that I cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from me. Every mankind from Adam and Eve forward now are sinners. Cain and Abel, forward. So our sin separates us from God. And this is what he does to get us back in right standing, right standing at one minute. By faith, do this, and I'll deal with the sin. He never put the responsibility on us. And every one of those Old Testament sacrifices 
were pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would one day be given on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And Saul, Saul, that's what, he, that's what he was about. He was trying to gain his own righteousness. So he would write to the Philippians in chapter 3, and he would say, look, you know, I had to let go of all of that. I had to count it as dung. Everything I achieved, all the work I did as a Pharisee of Pharisee in that whole religiosity approach to try to gain something from God that was never intended to be gained that way by works, I had to count it as rubbish. That I may be found in him, Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Jesus had not ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit would not have come and absolutely, unequivocally, undeniably worked out in our hearts that we are sinners, we're wrong, and we need to then be made right. How important is the, the ascension now? How do we not tie the ascension to the work, continued work of the Holy Spirit? Romans 10, 9, and 10. Actually, yeah, all the way through 11. We have this phrase called the Romans road. We're talking to people about conversion. Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God. I'm sorry, Romans 3.20. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It starts there. We're all sinners. Amen? Amen? And I always say, if you think you're not, stand up and tell us you're not, and that just proves you are because you just lied. So all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.20. Then we come to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, separation from God. We see that from Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding in their, their shame, separated from God because of the sin. But it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay. Then the Romans road continues on, and we come to Romans 10, 9 and 10. And it's all about what God needs to hear from us. You know, if, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. How many of you guys know we confess with our mouth? Amen? We believe in our hearts. And that's why for you that are new around here, or you that might be watching even for the first time online, oftentimes, almost every service, we have a prayer. We call it a sinner's prayer. And I've had a number of people question me on that, and even a couple of people laughed. And, oh, I'm not going to go to a church that, that leads people in that prayer. It's disingenuous. And I kind of laugh at all that because I remember at five years old, my Sunday school teacher saying, Lance, you ready to accept Jesus Christ? And I'm like, yeah. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I wanted him. How many of you know you can be very genuine in repeating something that someone's asking you to say? 
Anybody married here? Repeat after me. Any American citizens here who stood in front of someone and raised their hand? They weren't born in this country? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. Did you repeat after somebody? Welcome to America, by the way. We believe it took. You follow me? So there are a lot of people that come to God. They don't know what to say. And it's, it's not a, some sort of like, it's not the prayer. It's what's happening in your heart. And that's what Romans 10, 9, and 10 is about. So if you ever hear us praying at the end of our services, that's what we're doing. We're assuming there's some people that don't know what to say to God. But that scripture spells it out. And we're just like, pray this to him, man. I'm going to believe it. And he'll come into your life. If you're saved here right now, how important did the ascension just become? Very. Very important. Lastly, the Spirit convicts the lost sinner of judgment. He convinces us of this judgment. And there might be the, well, yeah, the judgment as far as final judgment for fallen mankind, hell, and I, I don't want to go there, and he reveals that to us as well. There's that component here. But he also says, because the ruler of this world is judged. You could tie that to that, or you could just go, what a liberating thought for the Holy Spirit to just, he's left here for that reason, to show me that that guy is a defeated foe. How many of us need to be reminded of that? Like a lot. And so, he was defeated on the cross. Paul talks about on the cross, all principalities and powers were defeated. Satan being part of that. And if he's a defeated foe, to me as a child of God, and I know that, he might be the prince of power of the air who works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2, on the earth, but that's not who he is in my life anymore. He's defeated. Greater is he that's within me than he that's within the world, right? Agree with me, at least. For the sake of the people online, they're like, Lance just lost them all. It's biblical, and it's true. Amen. Thank you, Lee, for that. And because of that, he, Satan, will only control my life if I yield to him. How important was the ascension now? Giving me that confidence as the Holy Spirit comes alongside me as the Paracletos. To be with me, in me, empower me. Oh, but there's more. Globally, he is going to be convicting people of sin. That emboldens me by knowing that. Whoa, he's at work convicting people of sin? Like, maybe that's why I'm not surprised sometimes when I'm talking to people and they're like, ready to just jump in the boat. The fishing's kind of good today. Because he is at work. And it's amazing how our view of Satan begins to change when we begin to understand through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who he is as a defeated foe. One more point. 
When Jesus ascended into heaven, he assumed an interesting role. I'm halfway through my Bible study, just so you know. I'm not going to teach the other half. But he, ascend, he, he assumed these roles. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says, to ever intercede for us. Okay? In 1 John chapter 2, he becomes our advocate. So think about these words. An interceder and an advocate. One of the scriptures that is so powerful, that has just moved me, is in the book of Hebrews. The first time I ever taught the book of Hebrews, I was asked to teach the book of James in a Bible school. I somewhat had a handle on the book of James. But I'd never taught or really studied the book of Hebrews, and they said, at this level, will you teach this book with the book of James? And I'll have you know, I stood in front of a classroom for a long time, and I was learning as much as they were. And when the class was over, months later, I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. I got it in my head, but it hadn't translated to my heart. Then I taught it to this church a few years later. Got it a little bit more, and it was starting to do something in my heart. And then, I don't know, four years ago, the author, not the author, like is it Paul and Barnabas, that kind of author, God. He just revealed himself to me in a very unique way. And I got it. I got it. And I began to understand it's all about Jesus and how he just wants to become more superior in your life to anything else. That's it. That's a simple definition of the book of Hebrews. The book is directed towards Hebrews, properly named, who were converted, religious people who now found Jesus and had their lives transformed by Jesus. And the pressure, family pressure, cultural pressure living in Jerusalem got to be so intense that some of them were like, I'm just, I'm leaving Christianity and I'm running back to Judaism. And because we have a gracious God, how many of you just are so excited that God just hunts you down and doesn't give up? Someone's like, I'm always pursuing him. No, sometimes he's pursuing you. And the merciful, gracious, loving heart of God is poured out through this beautiful book, the book of Hebrews. And all the writer is doing is contrasting what they're running back to with who they're running from. That's it. So you get into chapter 4, and to run back to Judaism is to run back to Moses, the law, all the traditions. It's, it's, it's to run back to having a high priest. And every Jew knew that a high priest role was huge. You might have even missed that. A lot of people, when they first come out of like 
religious movements that have the priests and the robes and the big hats and all that. They kind of miss the stained glass, the incense. They miss it all until they find something more genuine and more God-focused. And then all of a sudden, that fades. And now it's just Jesus and, and all that incense and big hats and stuff had its place, but it's no longer comparable to him. They left him and ran back to the big hats and the big robes. And all the writer, just picture God winning over their hearts. He's like, okay, the high priest, though, has limitations. You know, he could only go into the presence of God once a year on Yom Kippur. And before he ever dealt with your sin, he had to, like, sit down and deal with his sin, offer a bull, and get, make sure his heart is right. Otherwise, he goes into the presence of God. Boom, he's gone. Next. They're limited. Our high priest, what's the role, by the way, and the function of a high priest? To represent you to God and God to you. There's an there's a, there's a interceding role. And, and the writer says, look, we don't have a high priest in Christ that's like the high priest of the world. They're sinners. He's never sinned. They're on contract. They only live so long. He's never died. You follow me? They can only really deal with you going to the presence of God once a year. He is God. And this is what he says. Seeing then that we have a high priest who, by the way, if he didn't ascend, would not be there, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold on. Don't let go of him. Because he's there as our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. That's talking about the high priest they're running to in Judaism. Listen. The view of deity in those days was somewhat warped. The Stoics, popular in the Roman Empire, they believed that God lived somewhere between their view of God. He was somewhere between earth and, and his throne. Unapproachable, unattainable. The Stoics. The Epicureans, they had that same conviction. But th there was this whole question over the sympathy of their God and the empathy of their God and the feeling of their God. Can our God even feel? They have these weird perceptions of God. And as you've been saying, our perception of God radically affects our relationship with God. The Jews, they looked at God in a more, listen, respectfully and reverently, a more legalistic, unsympathetic 